This episode is brought to you by 9AM Health, diabetes care that fits your life. Diabetes Sisters, a world in which women are fully empowered to effectively manage their diabetes. Is there a medical bias for those with type 2 diabetes? I think so. And as someone who lives with it, it definitely feels like at every turn sometimes when it comes to whether my management, my doctor's team, not directly, more passively, or just interacting with people who discuss diabetes to the media. There just seems to be this huge bias that comes with it. Insurance, all of that. And to me, it starts with the medical world. It starts with the professionals that are making these diagnoses. It starts with the educators of those med- medical professionals, that there is clearly a bias when it comes to type 2 diabetes and other various types of diabetes that don't seem to immediately get the same level of bias stigma and misinformation as others. Now, hands down, diabetes has plenty of stigma and misinformation. If ask anybody who lives with diabetes, if they never told you their type, a lot of assumptions are made. But in the subcategory of that assumption is what type of diabetes do you have? And if you dare to say two, there's a lot that immediately happens in that moment from the passive thoughts that are happening in the person's mind who's asking to getting those up and down looks to see, do you look like you have type two diabetes? To being constantly told to just eat better, exercise, stop being lazy, don't be fat, make sure you're doing this, make sure you're doing that. Are you allowed to eat that? All rolled up into one. So gonna jump into this today and I'm a little hostile about it because it is such a thing that has caused a lot of discomfort, a lot of stress, a lot of worry for not only myself, but for my family and other people that I know who are either worried about getting diabetes because of the bias, stigma, and misinformation around type 2 or just interactive treatment. The same level of bias that tends to stem from the medical professionals has trickled down into so many other avenues, including other diabetics. There are other people who live with diabetes who don't have type 2 who also have passive biases about those with type 2. It's created this underlining rift between the type 1 world and the type 2 world and sometimes even backlashes against those who have Modi and may not necessarily need insulin, but there's 15 variations of Modi and sometimes it might just mean medical or excuse me, oral medication. And if you tell somebody that all you do is take oral medication for diabetes, you're automatically roped into the type 2 crowd, even if that's not the type that you have. So let's jump into this and figure out what the hell is going on. You're listening to Healing in Hindsight, your Nobia source for thriving with diabetes. What's up? I'm Taylor Danielle, and it's my goal to help millennials living with diabetes have an amazing life without your diagnosis getting in the way. I get it. I was diagnosed back in 2015 with type 2 diabetes, and I had no one around my age to understand how I could still travel, socialize, or even have meaningful relationships. But I feel like with a focus on mindset perspective and lifestyle changes that are unique to you, together, we can take back our health and our lives. Consider this the bread table talk for those living with diabetes. 
minus the entanglements, though. So let's do it. Okay, so let's talk about this medical bias specific to type 2. Now, I won't give you a history lesson on the discovery of diabetes. Google it. It's all there. But understand that the first known, at least findings of it, was like 1552 by an Egyptian physician. It came from same symptoms, things like that. But the actual discovery of it, where it's like fully written out, there started to be research, that kind of thing. What? 1776? Matthew Dobson? 1776, independence, all that stuff. Anyways, so over time, not that long ago in terms of actual medical research, obviously diabetes has been talked about, dealt with, mapped out for centuries, right? From ancient Egypt, India to China, there's a long history of people documenting the kind of things that relate to diabetes symptoms, things like that. However, when we started to actually get like full on research with it in 1776, it was more so of understanding of type one. And there was experimentation of pulling insulin from dogs from the pancreas and then placing it into a dog that didn't have insulin production, basically, because animals can get diabetes, too. Dog was cured. All good to go. Speed fast later. The cows were then used to pull insulin from and then used in humans. And it was done for a while until human-based insulin was finally created. Um, there was an understanding at some point, 1936 to be specific, that's when the difference between type 1 and type 2 was discovered. Right? So there was an understanding of insulin deficiency and insulin resistance. And even though there was that understanding and human insulin finally came into the map in the 70s, all that kind of stuff like that, there's not a lot of information that I've found, and I'm not saying that it's not there. There's just, it's a huge paper tone with the internet. There's also like validity of that, all that. But as type 1 treatment kicks up, type 2 treatment also does kick up with non-injectable oral-based medication. But there was this huge discovery that, ah, huge, but needless to say, diet and diet was a factor in understanding how type two worked along with non-injectable medication or oral medication. And I feel if in the seventies was when insulin started to actually be reproduced, the human version, not the animal version. And this is in the late seventies going into the eighties and you already have a bias when it comes to race and ethnicity. And then you also have the beauty world that's really kicking up of everybody being crazy skinny thin and diets. The diet culture is already like starting to pick up or whatever. Somewhere along the way, the two met in the middle and said, let's have a baby. And now diabetes equates to if you are overweight, because you would need to follow a, you know, specific diet and diet intervention to help prevent or severely reduce chances of actually having a diabetes diagnosis. I don't know how true that is. That's just my theory based off of when diabetes started to become in modern time. And so already there is 
information and understanding from just various doctors who have shared their experience of what they've learned, that when they're in medical school, a lot of times they don't spend very much on nutrition and weight. And if they do, they're already being passed down or passively taught that being obese or what can be deemed as obese is the equivalent to unhealthy, like the BMI chart. That's taught everywhere. Hey, if your person lands on this number, I think it was like, what, like 29 or higher, you're considered mildly obese. And then it gets moderate and then it gets severe from there. And so com the combination of the BMI chart and the cultural aspect of needing to be skinny and trying to figure out the American diet after processed foods have been running rampant for at least 20 years at this point after the wars and everything. All of this brews into this nice little concoction of stigma and misinformation for those living with type 2. Now, it's not to say that those living with type 1 didn't catch a little bit of that slack, but there was something to use for that. And a lot of times in the diagnosis of type 1, you're not it's not emphasized that diet and exercise is the thing that's going to help treat it. It helps. And I'm not saying that type 1s are not being told to watch their diet and their exercise and their weight. I especially feel that those who are my lot of family probably might see that a little bit more simply because you're an adult. It's late onset, late onset type 1. And if you are in a larger body, it may be pressed on you pretty hard, just like with someone with type 2 in a larger body, that diet and exercise and losing a bunch of weight is going to be a key factor to getting your diabetes in control, quote unquote. Now, the bias of weight by itself in the medical community is already a big deal. It's already something that's been happening for a while. I have definitely interacted with plenty of doctors who have said you're passively taught that being in a larger body and having excess fat on you is bad. And that if you want to be healthy in anything, that you need to have or be at a certain weight and certain body percentage to be deemed healthy. So you pair that with the understanding that diet and weight, quote unquote, with type two, that controlling those two factors could severely reduce chances and or progression of type two. And it creates this message that, all right, don't be fat, don't eat like shit. You won't get diabetes. But the problem with that is there's not enough that goes into research of A, those who are just naturally in larger bodies. It's a thing. Not because they're unhealthy. There are plenty of people in larger bodies who are very healthy, healthier than me and not living with diabetes. So why is it that the baseline thing is if you're overweight by our measurements over here that isn't tested against other races and ethnicities because the BMI chart was based on the average height white male and it hasn't been changed since the 1800s and didn't factor in the differences between a male body and a female body if that even needs to be a measurement it doesn't take into account how other ethnicities builds factor in and African-Americans and Hispanics are the two, and Native Americans, are the, are the three most susceptible genetically to contract diabetes. So there's so much that I feel like hasn't been tested or at least hasn't been brought to light in, for, in terms of testing to understand 
that type 2 diabetes should not be treated as a fat disease. Yes, do I understand that diet and proper weight for your body type, baby, and I'm using that very loosely because even that has been all around the health and wellness and fitness space. So I, I say that very loosely, but that those factors do help, but that isn't the end all be all and or the reason why you might develop type two. The genetic piece is something that I'm super interested in and I really want the medical community to dig more into this because take myself and one of our guests coming up, Dex Geralds, right? No. I had to pause to talk to you about a service that I've actually been using. That service is 9AM Health. 9AM Health is a virtual diabetes clinic that makes it so easy to manage without having to leave my house. I'm talking A1C labs done from home, medication shipped directly to your house, having your own diabetes care specialist who helps you with all of the little things that go in between management, things like helping with food or lifestyle changes or changing certain habits. They will support you in all of that. It is so much cheaper than what I was paying with insurance. So I'm really grateful for 9AM Health and everything that they're providing in order to make someone like myself have an easier time with diabetes care management because we all know it can be really challenging but to know that I can text, call, or send them a message on the online app in order to get support. And I don't know about you, but trying to take off time from work to go to the doctor, having to sit in the waiting room for 30 minutes only to meet with your doctor for five, it's just such an archaic experience. And I really feel that 9AM Health changes all of that. Would love for you to try it out. Click the link in the show notes and tell them I sent you. Being diagnosed with diabetes is definitely a challenge. Add to that the ups and downs of being a woman, and it gets even more complicated. That's where a community like Diabetes Sisters steps up. The Diabetes Sisters has an educational platform and support system where we can get together and talk about the things that we experience. It's for women of all ages and stages and for all types of diabetes. What I love about Diabetes Sisters is they have a wealth of knowledge on their blog, on their forums, but they even have community support through pods where I can actually meet up with local women and have in-person conversations or virtual conversations to talk about the things that we go through. It's a great place for sisterhood and community. I appreciate that it's their mission to improve the health and quality of life for women with diabetes and to advocate on their behalf. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about how you can get involved. And thank you, Diabetes Sisters, for sponsoring this episode and for supporting and advocating for women everywhere. Take myself and a couple of other people that I know that live with type 2. A lot of us have in common that we're young. And young, I mean like mid-20s at the time of diagnosis. And some of us were considered overweight or yeah, I think I was considered overweight. Some were considered to be absolutely fit, ripped even, muscular, all those things, which doesn't fit why somebody would get type two by society standards. So why would you end up with type two if you have zero body fat or a very low percentage of body fat and you have great muscular structure and you're athletic, you're eating well, all of that, and you still end up with a diagnosis? But both your parents have it. Weird. So it just goes to show that 
there's just not enough constant review that we are being shown. I don't want to rag on anybody because I'm definitely friends with people in the medical field. I don't know the full complexities of the scientific process of how often are we retesting the information that was previously discovered to see if this still holds true today. It feels the medical community discovers something, vets it in that time frame, or for some, it might take a couple of years. I definitely understand that some med medical trials take years to actually say this is valid. But how often do we go back and review that data against what's going on now? Especially now, there's more push for there to be diversity in the medical space. How often are we retesting information? Two, how often are we retesting this information against different variations like race and ethnicity, like age, like male or female, and putting it up against the medical measurements that we've been taught our whole lives, right? I took health class. We learned about BMI. We learned about nutrition. It's the same thing with nutrition, speaking of, as we have more dietitians on the rise. How often is that information being checked? We've seen the food pyramid change so many times. And I get it. They're trying to provide information on how to keep us healthy longer because the more that we're alive, the more that we can work and the more that we can spend money. That's just what it is, in my opinion. But who is the neutral party to ensure that information is accurate? And how are we teaching that information may work for some people? And if it doesn't work for you, here's how to adjust. How often are we getting a level of diversity in our whole nutritional section of the world in America's the melting pot of the world, right? We're, we're, we were founded by immigrants, right? How often are we checking about those cultural diets? Or did we just take and let, latch on to the ones that we liked the most, commercialized it, and said, this is the American standard diet, so if you eat only these things, then you should be okay. But we're not factoring in the cultural foods that came overseas and landed here and set up shop here and have been for generations. I grew up not only in a black household, but a Thai household. So I grew up eating a lot of Thai food and in direct proximity to that, a lot of Vietnamese food, a lot of Chinese food as well. What factors are we getting into that? If we're bordered against Mexico and being in Texas, Tex-Mex is a huge thing. How often are we taking into consideration those with Hispanic and Latin heritages of what are they eating? And newsflash, not every Latin country eats with tortillas. So there's so much, and this will not even scrape the surface of what's going on, but there's so much medical bias that it is really having a huge impact, not only on those living with diabetes in general. Again, nobody's, nobody's saved from this, but it seems that type two gets the brunt of that hit simply because at the time that the differences were discovered, it was also the prime time for being extremely skinny and fad diets. So what do we do about it? What do we do about that? How do we ensure that all future doctors, current ones as well, are educating themselves and changing the methodology that's been taught to them about diabetes? 
What do we do to ensure that our general physicians, who typically are the ones stepping in in the diagnosis part and not always sending people to an endo because endos are low-key and short supply in some areas, how do we ensure that they are actually providing proper initiation into a diabetes diagnosis that doesn't feel riddled with fear, guilt, and shame? And I know it takes time, but at the same time, it feels like there are some medical professionals who've been at this so long, they don't want to change. And it's this fundamental thing in us as humans sometimes that change is bad. And that change means I can't be comfortable because we like being comfortable, even though it's in the uncomfortable moments that we grow. So something's got to give here. What are the universities that churn out medical students doing to update their curriculum to ensure that the people that they are vetting for and testing and putting through all of these, you know, challenges and tests or whatever to say, I give you stamp of approval to be a doctor. What are they doing to ensure that the information that they are receiving and putting out isn't harming large groups of people because of this cookie cutter blanket idea of what something is like type 2 diabetes of, hey, they're overweight and the reading sucks and they have diabetes or they've been diagnosed with type 2, just attack the eating, attack the weight, and that's it. Why are they only spending one day, the equivalent to 24 hours? So it might be spread out across days, but the equivalent to 24 hours to nutrition. And I feel like We've got enough information out there to show that nutrition and the right nutrition for the right person, meaning tailoring each individual to their proper nutritional profile, if you will, that isn't just steeped in cookie cutter, here's what I gave to everybody else, but that factors in their culture, their cultural foods, understanding the nutritional value of those cultural foods, which yes, does take studying, but even so, there's whole countries that can provide information to that. I'm just saying. But how do we ensure that when they're learning about nutrition, they know how to provide tailored nutritional advice based on that person and their lifestyle factors and their culture and possibly their ethnicity? Are you accessible to the things that you need to make this easy for you? I don't know. It's just, it's frustrating because I know that, I don't know, but I feel very strongly that if those kind of changes were implemented, granted, it'll take some years because we've got to phase out so much and gain trust, honestly, with people in order to ensure that we can stay healthy longer. Because despite if it's a capitalist agenda or not, a lot of people want to stay healthy longer. A lot of people want to see generations of their families exist or just experience life. There's, we spend so much of life working to live or living to work, I don't know, <laughs> whichever one, that a lot of us feel like we're not going to get to explore the world until we're in our 60s and 70s. And a lot of us ain't trying to get on that wave. <laughs> I know I'm not. And I don't want to feel like I'm confined to North America because if I don't pour into North America, I can't go nowhere else. And I feel like that's just backwards. Whole another soapbox for soapbox for another day. But 
I hope that anybody who is going to the medical or health field hears this and considers that there has to be questions when you when there are gaps in that. And we can't keep accepting boilerplate diagnosis and treatment for people who don't fit that mold. I didn't. I could have done everything right. I could have been in the best shape of my life and still ended up with type 2 diabetes. So why wasn't that ever a factor or considered? Even though, yes, I went in at my heaviest and my diet was poor, I am not sitting here and saying that I didn't have the, the right foundation to slow the progress at least. But to lean only into that and to not consider that there may be a strong genetic tie to why I ended up here, the other, that's important to know because so far, a lot of my medical team has been like, oh, you can come off your meds and, oh, we can do my first endo. Y'all have heard me say it so many times now. You probably have the story memorized. Like, lose 40 pounds and do all these things and we can get you off your meds and you probably won't even have diabetes anymore. And I don't want to call it curing. I think remission is probably the best word that I choose to use. Reversal, maybe, do what you will with that information on how you want to define someone with type 2 diabetes who no longer needs to take diabetes medication and do and or wear things like a CGM to check on that. So remission, but if a genetic factor is in place for me, if I get all the numbers correctly, but for whatever reason, when I come off the meds, even though I'm in the healthiest state that I could be, my numbers still go haywire. What if that means, like, I truly am stuck with type 2 for life? Because, full transparency, I'm pushing to end up in a place where I'm not on medication, where I don't need to use a CGM. I'm pushing for remission, but in a way that suits me. Because so far, the people that have proposed helping me with remission have only brought extreme ways of living. And I can't put myself and strain myself in that way if it's not sustainable. And I hear people like, oh, choose your heart, and ah, I call bullshit. Like, it is not to say that some of the ways that these people have presented aren't helpful. But are they sustainable? And are they willing to meet me where I'm at of, hey, I want to still be able to live and enjoy things. And the way that you're setting this up is I can't do that. Or, hey, I'll have to literally drag meals to restaurants everywhere I go, even though I'm going to a restaurant, because I can't have anything that's on the menu. I mean, there's not a way to find balance in that. Isn't that weird? I'm just saying. So that's my personal piece on it. Don't do your own research. Have your own opinions about it. Think for yourself. But I just feel like there's not enough support, resources, discovery, or what investigation. That's the word I'm looking for. To understanding type 2 and any other type of oral-based diabetes to relieve some of this misinformation and stigma. Because right now people are running rampant thinking this is a fat disease. and 
it's the butt of jokes in media now. And at the point that I'm going out with friends and somebody says, oh, they just sat down a plate of diabetes in front of me or I'm about to drink a whole thing of diabetes. It really wears on you and it gets old because then it makes it feel like, okay, I'm the joke because I'm sitting here with this. And if I'm at the table with you, like, why is that funny? Even some of my really close friends, I don't say anything about it to them because I know that they don't mean it to me, but sometimes it still stings. I'm like, can you not say that? Because I still like to enjoy food. I still like to have a treat every now and then. And that makes me feel really shitty about myself because I didn't cause my diabetes. So when you say that, it's like, hey, I'm making an active choice to eat diabetes right now. And also, how insulting is that to the person who prepared the food that, hey, everything that you just made is just, is just riddled with diabetes. Like, it's something that you can inject. Soapbox over. Or rant over. But I definitely hope to see a shift in the medical community and in the world about how they see type 2 diabetes. It would be great if it was simply seen as a variation of diabetes that is just insulin sensitive or insulin resistant. That's it. That's all. But the level of treatment and respect should be the same. So. You already know. It's a lot on my mind. But that's all I got for today in this round. I really want to hear y'all's thoughts on this. On how you feel about the medical bias with type 2 specifically. Anybody. Let's have an open dialogue. Leave a comment on the weekly feedback post. You can also leave a comment on the post for this episode when it drops. Or when you're listening to it. I'll go find it. And let me know how you feel about it. Is there hope for that? Can we change the narrative? I think we can. It's going to take some time, but I think we can. And keep tuning in on your favorite podcast platforms. New episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. And yeah, I'll catch you guys next time. But keep thinking about that. Yeah. Peace. <laughs>